Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. In the last 50 years in the United States, young adults have undergone a startling transformation. In 1960, two-thirds of all American men and 77% of American women had left home, finished school, married, had a child, and were financially dependent all by the age of 30. By 2010, these five things were true of only 28% of men and 39% of women. These greatly altered figures are symptomatic of cultural and economic changes around the world, not just in the United States, but in nearly every advanced economy. They are exacerbated by a mysterious lack of purpose and a widespread anxiety among both young and older adults. How this all came to be is arguable, but the good news is that there is something that colleges and universities can do to correct the situation. Or that's the argument of my guest, Tim Clydesdale, professor of sociology at the College of New Jersey, and the author of two important books about American undergraduates. In the first year out, Understanding American Teens After High School, Clydesdale developed some unsettling conclusions, at least for parents and professors, about what college students actually learned in their first year of college. Now in his latest book, The Purposeful Graduate, Why Colleges Must Talk to Students About Vocation, Clydesdale brings good news. A deliberate attempt to talk about the purpose of human life improves the subsequent lives of college students and makes colleges more pleasant places to work in. Tim Clydesdale, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Al. Well, Tim, I, Tim, I, I think of well, I think of myself a little bit, and you are you are a trained sort of uh, wildlife biologist gathered at the waterhole watching the undergraduates come down to feed. Uh, um, <laughs> and you know, I like to think that you're you're the guide, and you know, I'm the scared tourist peeking over your shoulder uh, as they're sipping at the water and looking around and growling and things. But your your books are very much. Um, they are sort of the looking out from the blind with the infrared cameras at the animals at the waterhole. How do you, how do you do the research for them? Uh, great. Well, I mean, one of the things to do is just to sit and talk with uh, with with teenagers, with young adults, because the the stunning thing I found is if you simply uh, you know you promise them confidentiality, you put them in a room, and you give them a chance to talk, and you really listen to them, they will open up their lives to you. They'll open up their hearts to you. And I think the thing that's just so amazing is I don't think there's very many people listening anymore. And I think it speaks to a deeper hunger in our culture of people to actually listen to you. Um, so it, it's not that hard, actually, to to learn an awful lot about uh, young adults simply by talking to them. And then you add into that some some observation, get into the context they are, see how they're actually, uh, you know, um, inhabiting colleges or high schools, and, and, you, and you round out that picture very quickly. So you, you don't dress up like a college undergraduate. I believe there's a one 
famous case study recently where an anthropologist did that. Uh, uh, no. Yeah, no. One, one that's considered unethical in sociology to do that, and 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 two, I just couldn't be even begin to pass for for a college student. I'm not even no. all that connected on social media, so I would be completely lost. What's beautiful is actually coming in as who you are yeah. and just being very honest about uh, about who you are and asking to understand the social worlds the students are in. And again, once you do that, uh, and you really do that with the genuineness and honesty, they really are very quick to to answer you and tell you about their lives. How long does that take? Ten minutes before they start warmed up? I mean, how how long, if we want to have a conversation with an undergraduate, um, a serious conversation, we, how do we how do we begin? This is well, a, not what a question I expected to ask five minutes ago. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, you know, it, I'd say you have to kind of get past about the 20 minute threshold, which is probably way longer than most faculty office hour appointments would last. So, sure. um, you know, you, you need this one, you need to sit and two, particularly for faculty, you need to shut up. Um, you need to let <laughs> the students uh, talk and, and you need to listen and then do that active listening. So you're, you're really hearing what they're saying and then you're kind of echoing back. So I think what I hear you saying is, and then, and then once they begin to get into that mode, they will really uh, open up to hmm. you. Hmm. All right. Let's talk, uh, first year out. Um, briefly, what were your findings in first year out? So, so my findings, and, and you had you had particularly cited uh, my findings with respect to to higher education, um, is a classic example of the glass half full. So, so the good news is at the end of one year of of, of college, uh, uh, university education, um, students are in fact cognitively sharper. I mean, I can actually hear this in how they answered my questions, in the number of words that they used in their sentences, the variety of words they used, the extent of their arguments. They would answer even you could see it visually in, in paragraph chunks rather than in short um, sentences or even fragments of sentences. So the good news is all that kind of uh, work that they have to do is developing their ability to think a little bit more um, complexly. I get that's not really a word, but to think think with more complexity um, about uh, about whatever it is that you're asking them about. So that's the good news. The, the bad news is um, they become, I think, intellectually Im immune. They literally kind of inoculate themselves against the sort of deeper intellectual questions um, that uh, that at least for faculty members like you and I are the most engaging things and what we most want them to uh, to to learn and, and and be able to work well with in college. So um, that's that's the bad news. Um, and the reason they do this is is just it, it's simply this: the the first year out of high school is a pretty significant time of transition socially and interpersonally um, and relationally. And with all that going on, honestly, these deeper questions of gender, race, um, politics, religious identities get put into something I call an identity lockbox. They literally get moved off the table for the vast majority of students because you don't want to open up that kind of box and, 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 and let that sort of seriously alter your life in some way. You're trying to figure out how to make friends, how to connect to other people, um, and that's your primary focus. And so the deeper questions really get uh, moved off to the side um, and kept there um, uh, so that you can really master what I call daily life management. Now, now, I know you're not a psychologist, so this is an unfair question, but as I'm, you know, I, I think about this a lot. 
uh, as I'm with students. Um, you've answered the why. Um, the how is interesting. If we actually do put it into a lockbox like that, it seems to me there probably is actually some sort of neurological mechanism that's being triggered as well. Um, I'm not a licensed psychologist, so I can say this. Um, mm. But I mean, there, maybe there's, there's, there, it has to lead to some sort of anxiety or some sort of interest. There's an interesting neural trick that we're playing on ourselves when we do something like that. It seems to me. Uh, I, I think there, I think there could be. I'm not really sure about that. I do know that Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, who came up with this term, emerging adulthood to talk about this changing um, uh, pattern that, that, that we're seeing over the last you know 50 years in the lengthening of adulthood, basically said the identity exploration that used to happen in adolescence has moved to this new developmental time period he calls emerging adulthood. I would argue even further that that much of that identity exploration has moved out of the college years, that, that for many students, they literally bracket that and move it further on. Neurologically, the only thing I can say you know, with some degree of certainty is that we do know that the frontal prefrontal cortex does not finish developing until age 25. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, for, you know, for millennia, cultures have, have treated people as adults way younger than that, and they've actually ro risen to the occasion. So I think there's, there's many aspects of that that still need to get sorted out. But that's, that's the most I can kind of offer in yeah, response yeah. To, to your thoughts there. So, um, so, there's a so there's a certain segue as you're moving into the purpose, purposeful graduate. Well, let's talk first of all. Um, there was a about the Lilly Grant that led to uh, ultimately to purposeful graduate. Sure. So, uh, so the um, the Lilly Endowment um, is uh, one of the the world's largest private foundations, and it has three divisions, um, uh, education, community development, and religion. And by religion, Eli Lilly, when he founded it, uh, meant Christianity. And so in the religion division, um, they're charged with doing all they can to en enhance um, Christian um, life and churches, um, particularly in North America. Um, and so they decided, uh, based on some earlier sorts of research and their own kind of uh, training, both of the uh, people were, were, were seminary trained that, um, that led uh, this division, um, that uh, what, what we really need are outstanding clergy. And there was this kind of declining connection between um, liberal arts education and people going uh, into the ministry, which used to exist. So there's plenty of you know pre-med and pre-law and pre-engineering folks, but there's hardly any pre-clergy people anymore, and they wanted to kind of rebuild that connection. Of course, to do that, you have to kind of cast a very wide net. And so they decided to fund programs um, on college campuses that would encourage these campuses through their faculty and staff to creatively engage students in questions of purpose, calling, meaning, um, and even vocation um, during their undergraduate years with the hope that some of those students, as they engage those questions, would uh, find themselves um, thinking about perhaps a career in the ministry. And in fact, that did ultimately happen, but in a way, it's almost a, a kind of a, a, a smaller product, a byproduct of this project, less than the kind of primary effect because they cast such a, a wide net in these in these programs. Now, now, how big was the grant and to how many schools? So the grant 
that was uh, enormous. Uh, it was nearly a quarter billion dollars total um, to uh, 88 different uh, campuses across the United States. Um, each campus was uh, eligible for an initial grant of up to two million dollars, and then that lasted for five years of programming, and then um, and then they could have a supplemental grant, follow-up grant, a sustainability one that was for half a million dollars to select the best programs that they had been able to identify during their previous five years and fund those so that they became regular and ongoing parts of the uh, of the of the college or university so were, were you involved with the project at the beginning to do this study or did that come later not at all. I, I really didn't know anything about it um, and uh, was a complete outsider to it. I had had some connection uh, with the Lilly Endowment for some other uh, research, and thus I was known to uh, one of the program officers there, now the current uh, vice president of, of the Lilly Endowment, Chris Coble. Um, and he walked up to me at, uh, at a professional meeting and said, do you have time to talk? And, and here's just a career tip for uh, any of you who are listening who are in academia. If a major program officer walks <laughs> up to you and says, do you have time to talk? You, the answer is always yes. Yeah. Uh, so I said, yes, of course I have time. And, and, how, and how handsome you are. <laughs> <laughs> and how well do you sing, yes. uh, to quote uh, uh, another um, another famous uh, uh, yeah. foundation officer. But um, when, a friend, when a friend of mine started working for an endowment, I, I told him he was had never been more beautiful in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's of course one of the things that uh, is so true about found about foundation work is 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 you're always told good stuff and um, I can't go into all the details but basically early on I had uh, connected with uh, with Chris and then his his predecessor Craig Dykstra and I was uh, I didn't realize this I was so new to my academic career they began telling me about some earlier programs I said well how do you know and I really began challenging the data and whatnot mm -hmm. and they loved it they yeah. honestly loved it because I, they were for the first time hearing someone say something other than then, oh, you guys are wonderful and everything you do is great. Yeah. So they knew that I would be fair with the data. They knew that I would I would gather data and I would actually tell them uh, the truth uh, about what I was finding with it. And and a lot of our early conversation was, well, what if I find this is a colossal waste of money? I mean, you know, what what uh, you know, do I have to write a book about that? And two, who would who would you know even publish mm -hmm. such a book? Um, and uh, they said, no, no, it, you know, if that's the case. You don't have to write a book. That's fine. We just want to know. Um, um, separately and independently uh, of, of anyone who's been connected with this project, what's going on. So that's how I got connected. Now, one of your conclusions, which you, uh, if I, I will quote you to yourself, uh, early on in the book, you say, uh, fostering academically capable, socially responsible, and resilient college graduates is neither a Herculean nor costly undertaking. And such graduates, in broad numbers, not only embody the accomplishment of higher education's core mission, but also supply its only indisputable response to the maelstrom of higher education critics and regulatory intrusion. Strong words. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, we, we focus so much on trying to respond to everyone who's who's criticizing higher education with with all these kind of arguments of, of for for uh, the the classic contribution of the humanities and things like that. And those are all right and good. But honestly, what you need to do is just put these really productive, purposeful, passionate college graduates in front of them, and that's your answer right there. 
I mean yeah. that that is your single best proof that you're doing what you say you're you're doing um, in higher education, and everyone seems to miss that. Yeah, uh, and I think it's mainly because uh, maybe we're not producing as many of them as we should, and and there's ways we can change that. So you studied how many programs? Uh- uh, I studied um, 26 of the 26. 88 campuses. So yeah. you're, you're referring these passionate undergraduates are products of these 26 programs. And yet these 26 programs were far, far, far uh, from cookie cutters. They were not the same sort of thing. So what are some of the variations? Describe some of these programs. Sure. That's a great question. So um, that was one of my biggest challenges kind of going into this. And I even had to redesign my uh, the number of uh, places I was going to study. I was originally planning to study about 12 of these campuses began to realize they were so diverse from each other I, I more than doubled the number of schools that that I needed to go to to capture this diversity um, when the Lilly Endowment said we want you to be creative as creative as you can imagine to facilitate this conversation and we want it to fit with your institution its culture its religious tradition if it still has an active church affiliation whatever it is make it work make it creative um, be willing to take some risk and uh, there were a few campuses that honestly didn't believe them and, and spent a long time kind of spinning their wheels uh, on, 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 on very conservative programs. So some places just just really kind of went with it. Um, and so uh, one one place that I that I described that I think uh, did a really great job is they created a themed sophomore residential hall. And this and this hall was uh, you had to apply to get into it. It was the nicest uh, building on campus. They had kind of um, uh, had, had switched it over to administration, switched it back then um, to uh, to to being a residential residential hall, um, did some, some, you know, inexpensive but important renovations in this beautiful lobby that overlooked the quad and the lake. Um, and they, they, they recruited some, you know, more than 200 sophomores. Folks that were were pretty much the um, the the leaders of various sorts of campus uh, activities and programs, student government, um, you know, uh, political groups on campus, all those sort of things, combined with the students who were were more religiously um, active uh, on on campus as well. This is a religiously heterogeneous campus, a Roman Catholic institution. Uh, one one um, question. One question. Sure. How, how did they get these people together into the same dorm? How, how did they do that? So um, they they simply made it something where uh, students could apply to be a part of this this dorm, uh-huh. and on the very first year, you know, it was the 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 um, there was a very charismatic director of religious life on this campus. And he went around and he just recruited ah. as many possible students as possible to initially get them there. And then it was so successful the first year, they always had more than they needed in terms of applications. It literally was competitive to get in. So the answer is hard work, okay? <laughs> yeah, 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 hard work, basically. Yeah. Um, and so this, this uh, I'll briefly uh, tell you a few things, but they, they had weekly mentoring groups. They, they broke the entire um, uh, residential hall into, into, into uh, 10 student groups, and then they assigned them either a faculty, a staff or an alumni mentor. They all work together through the same sort of uh, year-long set of reflection um, and discussion exercises. Then on top of uh, that sort of mentoring core to this program, um, they would have uh, outside speakers come in. They'd have dinner with them. They would tell their their uh, vocation stories. Um, they had service projects they did. They even had uh, courses that they taught in the residence hall with allied faculty that connected to some of these themes of purpose and meaning and vocation. Um, and it was such a powerful effect on that campus. In fact, that campus even had something of a retention problem before. 
And it and it began to see one, it turned around, and two, it just it created this core of some two hundred plus really enthusiastic, energetic sophomores who rolled out of it, who had two more years that they spent on that campus, and then it continued to create cohort after cohort of this. So a very powerful effect there. That was one example. Very different example of a program was um, uh, at at a, at a historically black uh, college where um, the the chaplain uh, said, you know, I definitely know how to you know talk to students about issues of vocation and calling, but I can't get them to come to chapel. Um, how am I going to do that? And she. Uh, decided to put in for a professional gospel musician to create and lead a gospel choir. Um, and uh, and that's exactly uh, what he came and did, created a phenomenally good gospel choir. And they went from about 150 people coming to their, their uh, chapel services on Sunday to over 600 and having to move to the gymnasium for Easter and Christmas because it was so packed. Um, and then they created a midweek event that was drawing another 300. The gospel choir w- would sing at these things. But then what they found is, you know, I mean, I think that that will draw people for a time. But then they found that, yes, this, you know, this, this, the chaplain's teaching and then other guest preachers she brought in. Yes, it's, it's speaking to things that matter to me. What does it mean to be a, a, a person of character, to be a person of purpose? to have a sense of calling and vocation. Um, and so that was a powerful effect. So it was it was a wide range of different things that campuses did. Give, give us a third example. Those are two very different examples. What's what's another one? Uh, All right. So, so I'll give you one more. And this was one for a campus that I that I think of as basically a, a religiously unaffiliated campus at this point. I mean, it had a historic affiliation, but it literally took the the uh, the steeple off of its chapel and converted the chapel into a black back box theater. Um, and so the uh, it still had a uh, department of philosophy and religion. It still had a requirement in philosophy or religion, and uh, the grant writer there was a, a professor of religion who was one, a great scholar, and two, a fantastic teacher. So she created a course um, I, uh, that I call Work and Meaning um, and, and created this uh, meaningful work initiative on this campus. And so students could come and take this class with her that, uh, you know, I sat in on it. It was phenomenal. So uh, they read everything from like the book of Ecclesiastes to Barbara Ehrenreich's Nickel and Dimed in America. They, uh, they watched uh, documentaries on sweatshops. They spent um, a weekend living on a minimum wage um, salary. Um, uh, they they visited job training programs. They read essays on like the soul and spirit of capitalism. I mean, it was a liberal arts education at its best and by a phenomenal instructor. Um, and, uh, and, and so each year, I mean, that, each semester, that course was, again, packed with students, or I think 40 students could get into it. Very small campus, but after, um, after you know, years of this being in place, one-third of students had been through this course, and then once they got through this course, then there was this whole suite of other things you could then do. It was kind of a gateway experience. So then there were uh, stipended internships that were available in nonprofits to people. There were um, additional kind of training and reflection programs, uh, service learning programs that went out from there. And so this was a very gentle sort of program. I mean, no one was forced to be in this in this class. They chose to be in this class. They loved this class. They wanted to engage in it. And who can argue with the idea that, you know, work should be meaningful? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, that's a that's a really good thing to kind of frame this about. I mean, everyone kind of wants meaningful work, at least everyone in an academic environment, I think, supports the idea of meaningful work. 
Now, you spend some time in, um, and this is very necessary for any practitioner in academia, um, describing the difficulties or uh, some of the difficulties um, in implementing these programs. Um, what were those? Uh, so there's there's basically um, two sets of, of, of ways you can kind of make a mistake with these programs. There's there's lots of them, but there are two broad ways. The first is um, to to try to implement a program that doesn't fit with the type of campus that you have, and that would happen sometimes. Um, you know, you, you just because a, a program works well, say, in a large urban Roman Catholic school does not mean it's going to work well in a rural, um, you know, nominally religious at best uh, campus that uh, has long uh, seen itself as um, you know uh, as as separate from from religion and non-sectarian. Very different campuses were in this initiative, so you needed very different approaches. So I talk about the importance of organic design. You've got to start getting a number of people to the table and get them to all buy in, faculty and staff alike. If you don't design this organically um, and uniquely to your campus, it's not going to work. The second thing that that is is a mistake is when you have people who are kind of running these programs, you need to have people who are high EQ, high emotional intelligence. Um, you can't just be uh, someone who uh, is thinking about this primarily, say, from an academic and scholarly point of view. Uh, you don't want to want to be professor kind of running this program because they're going to just use it to showcase their scholarly prowess, and they're not going to really be about the relationships that are so important. Um, as we were talking about a minute ago, and as you interviewed um, uh, Dan Chambliss about, Relationships are just core to a powerful um, education. Um, so uh, that's the other thing. You need to have someone who really understands how to relate well to people, how to connect to people, how to connect them to resources, and how to be you know, sympathetic and empathetic when they start thinking about these questions, which can get to some pretty deep sorts of emotional um, ideas and experiences and passions that you need to be ready to deal with. So this relates to one of the problems. It's interesting to say that one of the problems of implementation um, seemed to highlight um, a problem within contemporary high institutions of higher education. And I don't know how widespread this are, is, but there is um, you you highlight the staff professorial divide. Uh, we could call it the and the, there's also the administrative professorial divide, um, and these. Uh, these divides uh, make higher education institutions, I mean, based on the Gallup survey of satisfaction work, they make them, uh, well, very unhappy workplaces. Uh, go on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, except on the very tiniest of campuses, um, there was this uh, kind of Grand Canyon that seemed to split, an invisible Grand Canyon that seemed to split most campuses in two sides, the one side being uh, faculty and academic, the other side being the staff. And, uh, you know, the, the, the faculty very much think of themselves as the heart of the institution. It is an educational institution. It's about teaching students. Um, and so they see themselves as the heart of, of the place. Um, but the very interesting thing and the very humbling thing for me to hear as a faculty member as I spent all this time talking with students is students would say to me again and again and again, I learn far more outside of the classroom than I ever learned inside the classroom. And I think that was a, a big piece of humble pie that I needed to be able to eat as a faculty member that 
that that you know the the the, the people who know these students um, best are the folks who are the staff. I mean, those are the ones who are supervising them in their jobs. Those are the ones who are serving them food um, at all hours of the day and night. Those are the ones that are keeping them secure and and helping them when they're hurt or injured or um, have had a few too much uh, to drink. Um, and and they're also the ones that are there when they're um, when they're having deep questions and challenges. And and so a lot of staff honestly can feel like second class citizens because the faculty don't even think about the staff. They typically don't even know who they are. Um, they may only know them in passing, so they don't even realize that that these staff are educators too. They're not educating in the classroom, um, but they're educating absolutely, and they're not respected for the educational work that they do. So it really sets up uh, a lot of resentment, honestly, yeah, uh, yeah. there. Um, so, and some of the divides on these programs seem to fall out along those sta- staff versus faculty um, line, and yet uh, these programs, and we'll get to the effect on students, what was interesting to see is that these programs had a positive effect on the cohesion of staff and faculty on the campuses that tried them. They absolutely did. I mean, one of the best things that um, that some of these programs did is they is they got professors and staff together um, to talk about their work together, to read things together about um, what it means to be an educator, to think about questions of philosophy of education, even learn better who their students are. And when they would have these conversations, it built a tremendous amount of respect uh, on both sides of this divide, and it actually began to narrow the divide. Um, and and so a philosopher began to see, wow, this is the really important contribution that our public safety director um, has. And this is this, these are the issues that, that, that she's dealing with on a regular basis. And, and so now I start to see her world and her understanding of students a whole lot more, and I see how passionate she is about helping students really survive and thrive during these years. So it built some great connections that way between faculty and staff. Because if you're going to teach students how to be more thoughtful about what it means to have a life of meaning and purpose, you've got to have a faculty and staff who are themselves thoughtful about what it means to have a life of meaning and purpose. Uh, and it makes the, I mean, and this may seem like a small thing, but uh, to, to parents uh, who are poning up a lot of money uh, for college education. But uh, if a campus is a happier place, uh, then it's a better place to be educated, uh, a better place to live, that's for sure. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, one of the things that's most enlivened by this is the co-curricular. I mean, when when institutions uh, start to find their resources contract, which is the case in most um, higher educational institutions, um, when there's less money to go around, um, the first thing that tends to start um, emptying out is the co-curricular life. There's just less willingness to kind of launch these sorts of activities from the faculty or from the staff because it takes extra resources and, and you just don't have the emotional resources to kind of give of yourself in this way. When this uh, these programs rolled onto these campuses, one, it did have some you know financial stimulus that helped, but usually it's just kind of seed money. But there was just this renewed enthusiasm for people being citizens of the whole. Faculty became citizens of the whole campuses. Staff became citizens of the whole campuses, not just of their separate departments. And then they began to see the overall mission once again, and, and really remember what it is that drew them into higher education in the first place. Hmm. 
Let's talk about students now. Um, sure. What give us? Uh, you have uh, well, several reviews mentioned that this one particular anecdote of two anonymous students. Um, but just give us one one anecdote of sort of examples of student experience. Uh, sure. So, um, you know, in in one of my chapters, I talk about these two um, these two students, Tracy and James, um, and 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 Tracy was, you know, in, in some ways, you know, the the uh, you know the the professor's dream student. I mean, someone who was deeply engaged in thinking about um, about the about the water world and how she might be able to make a change in it. And so um, she she quickly, you know, jumped into these sorts of programs and became active in them because they really affirmed who she was. She was someone who did want to kind of go and change the world um, and, and, and live a life of, of purpose. And so this really, you know, strongly encouraged her. James was a different sort of fellow. James was uh, someone who was uh, in the school of business, absolutely headed on this kind of high upward mobility track, uh, wanted to work in finance um, and uh, came from a very affluent background himself. But there is this, um, he had heard that there was, um, this program that there were alumni mentors. Some of them were were quite um, successful who who participated in this mentoring. So he's thinking, I'm going to network. I'm going to join one of these small group uh, mentorship programs and 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 mentor with its alumni director. Well, he spent a year in this program, and that alumni director, who was a successful uh, businessman, challenged him to understand the importance of globalization, to see the privileged place from which he was thinking about the world, and to have a, sort of a deep experience of that by even spending a, a semester abroad. He went and did that. Uh, I think I actually spent a whole year abroad in China. When he came back, he began to realize, you know, I want to absolutely pursue a financial career, but I don't want to pursue it just for myself. I want to pursue this so that I can give opportunity to uh, other um uh, uh, teens um, to other adolescents who may have never had any understanding of both how the world of finance works um, and and how pouring themselves into this world can can lead them you know out of lives of of, of challenge and risk and uh, into more productive lives themselves. So so both of these um, students were were encouraged and 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 deeply impacted by these sorts of of programs and when they. They left college. They both ran into, you know, significant setbacks. But the interesting thing was when I interviewed them, even after that, it was the way they held on to this deeper vision and and continued to to show this resilience in spite of hurdles. That honestly, those who I interviewed that weren't part of these programs. Um, were much more quicker to just kind of abandon the course, to kind of turn off the path and just do something completely different rather than kind of keep the long-term view and the long-term perspective and hang on to their, their long-term goals. So resilience is the quality which continues people uh, to have purpose, uh, enables them to have purpose. Um, absolutely. I think resilience is, is, is critical if you're going to nurture a sense of purpose because, um, I mean, really the story of life after college, especially in, in, in the current global market and with the extraordinary uh, macrocultural changes that have made all the traditional scripts of how one becomes an adult so different, um, resilience, the story of life after college is a story of, of setbacks and hurdles and, and, and frustrations. And it's, it's those that manage to find a path 
over, through, and around and still hang on to their ideals, that's really the purposeful ones. Um, and those that kind of said, oh, I think I'm going to, to do this, and then after two months of you know, dead end say, eh, they give that up. You know, I've always wanted to be a writer all my life. I wanted to be in journalism. Um, the market's terrible. Two months couldn't do it. I'm switching to insurance and never look back again. Um, and that was the sort of thing I saw from people who hadn't spent time thinking about questions of purpose uh, and meaning during their college years what uh briefly it, it, what's sort of the aggregate data those are two those are two anecdotes those are nice but what's the overall data that you've uh that you've developed on these cohorts of students right right so i i i you know, I gather data from, as you can infer from what I just said, uh, from about 65 students on campus that never had these programs, studied them during their college years, interviewed them and uh, then, and then interviewed them about 12 to 15 months after they graduated from college. I did the same thing with people, 60 students that were part of these programs. So I have a good, you know, compare contrast uh, pool of, of, of um, young adults that I'm, that I'm drawing this data from. And one of the things I did is I actually converted some of this interview data into numbers. And I asked about... Um, you know, a variety of ways in the follow-up of how they felt they were doing. Were they satisfied in, with, their, with their work lives? Were they satisfied with their social lives? Were they satisfied with their, um, you know, their financial lives? Were they satisfied with their religious and spiritual lives? Were they satisfied with their love lives and so forth? And there were, there were a couple others that I asked about. Um, and, and so I just kind of scaled up, you know, whether people were satisfied um, or, or very satisfied, you know, satisfied or dissatisfied with these. And, and the interesting thing, of course, um, on the whole, most college graduates were satisfied. But the interesting things about those students that had spent time thinking about questions of purpose, they were very satisfied. They were satisfied with far more areas of their lives and far more deeply than students that had um, had not had this sort of reflection experience during their college years. So yes, the good news is that college across the board tends to make people more satisfied. But those who had spent time thinking about this, I would say they weren't just satisfied. They were flourishing. Hmm. Um, and that was a really, really uh, startling thing for me to see statistically. Hmm. Um, with just about five more minutes in the conversation, um, sure. I, we could keep on. I could keep on asking you questions for another couple hours, but um, <laughs> people don't want to download that big a file. Uh, right. what, what, you don't want to be subjected to it either. Uh, hmm. What? Uh, how can we do? Uh, let's let's turn to some news that we can use here. Um, if I was a faculty member on a campus which didn't have this endowment, um, you're suggesting to me that these are really, uh, this was a huge grant that Lily made, but nonetheless, these these programs are really rather simple. I mean, they're not very expensive combined to say, putting in a lazy river or uh, sand volleyball courts with football, foot showers. Um, what If I'm a faculty member, uh, what should I do to bring something like this to my campus? Great, great question. And um, I, I, I describe um, this as uh, these programs as kind of like uh, making a garden on campus. And there's various types of gardens, and so you need to choose a garden that's right for your your context. That's the that's the uh, uh, the, the metaphor I use quite a bit. But um, 
what faculty are in that garden is they can be like trees. Um, they, they, they actually can, then can help define the larger landscape of a garden, and they also provide an awful lot of tree um, shade uh, and support for a lot of different species. So, so suppose you're on a campus that doesn't have one of these things. There's a lot of stuff that you can do uh, pretty straightforward. There's a website um, that's still out there from the initial grant called ptev.org, uh, Programs for the Theological Exploration of Vocation.org, where you can uh, still get onto it. And there's uh, a ton of um, syllabi on there. There are book discussion guides. There are film discussion guides. In the appendix of my uh, of, of the Purposeful Graduate, you'll find a little bit of this material, but you'll find a lot more on this website. And just giving a green light for students to ask about these things, to include it as part of the themes, to include some writing and reflection um, is something that can that I think can happen in, in pretty much any field. Um, I had people in chemistry one time saying, we really want to figure out how to do this. And I said, well, one of the things that I think would be fabulous would be if every uh, every uh, field had a had a, a senior seminar or a seminar at some point that was blank and the public good. So chemistry and the public good. Um, but even if you brought a little bit of what you might do in that seminar down to an intro class, and so you had three minutes uh, with a profile of, of of famous chemists and the way in which they were kind of driven by a sense of, of 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 mission and calling and and vocation in their own lives in their work, um, and and you just kind of introduced and say every you know once a week you had that as part of your lecture in your chem 101 class um, what a great way to kind of begin to bring students into thinking about the broader ways that they can use chemistry and the powerful effects it can have um, on on uh, on the wider world you know now multiply that out into all the different fields that you have mm -hmm. across a, a college and university you can have a really powerful effect yeah those those are great ideas uh, and we'll certainly have a, a link to that uh, site on in the show notes. Uh, finally, um, parents listening to this are saying, yeah, I, I really would like my ch children to have a sense of purpose uh, as they become adults. I really want them to have resilience to achieve that purpose. Um, this is the time of year where people um, rising uh, high school seniors are taking the college tour. Um, some are, uh, of course, they, a, those a year older are soon off to this uh, life-changing experience. Uh, what are some of the things that they can do in order to develop a resilience and a sense of purpose? Great, great. So if you're if you're um, uh, you know walking on those tours through campuses, here's some of the things you can be kind of listening for. Um, does the college understand students are whole persons? Do they understand them as, as having more than just bodies and minds, but do they understand them as having hearts or souls or spirits that also need to be nurtured and, and, and developed during these years? That I think would be an important part. Does the campus understand that we call it higher education for a reason? It's not just you know the thing that comes next after high school, uh, but it's, it's designed to have you think more broadly and deeply about who you are and what the world is and your place in it. Those are things you can look at. Or is, is this tour all about jobs, statistics, and amenities? Um, are they telling you about the jobs people can get? Are they telling you about the statistics of students coming in and, and, and all the things they offer and all the amenities they have? If so, then you're looking at a place that's seeing that's basically bought into the consumeristic thinking about what, uh, about what college is. Um, and, and then as far as, you know, how to kind of nurture this both for students and for and for um, uh, parents thinking about this, um, 
don't be afraid to talk um, about this question of purpose uh, and meaning. 50% of undergraduates say they, they, uh, they hope to find their purpose in life during their college years. I think we do a pretty bad job in, in higher education generally in, in actually meeting that need. Um, but I think you'll find if you're a student or if you're a parent, just beginning to have this conversation, there are others who want to have this conversation too and it can begin to build. It, it really doesn't take much to get these conversations going. That's the interesting thing. Lots of people want to have it. They just don't realize they're even allowed to have it or they should be having it. My guest today has been Tim Clydesdale. He's the author of The Purposeful Graduate, Why Colleges Must Talk to Students About Vocation. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Al, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>